Good morning, church. Are you looking forward to singing and hearing wonderful words of life? I am. Thank you, Amber, for playing and helping tune our hearts. We have a special day today. We have the children's. We have the children's choir. Okay, having the children's choir and communion, and a few announcements. But uh, this. As I was thinking about worship and today, I thought, I have got to come over and change the clock. Otherwise, Wayne will be having an extra hour to preach. In yeah, do you look? You don't even look at it, do you? No. Why do we have a clock in the back? We ought to put it up here. Um, couple of announcements. Uh, ladies, we have a ladies' Christmas brunch coming up. If you've never been to one, I encourage you go to that. It's, it's a lovely time, I hear. I see it, but they kick me out. Um, and then on November 19th, we're having a, um, a condolence meal for Catherine Layton. So please keep her in your prayers as we send John off into the world. Catherine, will, when he goes into the military, will they cut his steak for him like you do? You're always a tough act to follow, that's for sure. Okay. Actually, I do right here. Uh, and it's in your worship folder and your bulletin. We're going to sing 228 here in just a minute. Jerry will be leading us uh, today. Last and did my Savior bleed. So if you want to turn to that, we're going to sing it as seated at per per to prepare ourselves to receive communion. When it's time for communion, we're going to call you up uh, by the different aisles and just come and receive both elements and then return back to your seat. If you're not a member of the church, you can still participate. We do ask you to be a member of the body of Christ, to have confessed your sin and to have um, confessed the Lord through believer's baptism. Uh, that's the requirement, and be sure to... Uh, take time to confess your sin and recognize he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we will receive that in a moment in remembrance of him. But in preparation to get your heart, think about the death of Christ as we sing this song, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. I also want to just note this passage here from your meditation verse that we sent out each week. In John 5, 39 through 40 is the text. Here it is. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. This is Christ speaking. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we come to you thankful for who you are. We're thankful for sending your Son to live among us, to die, to rise triumphantly from the grave, and to send on high. We, all, we know all of this. We, we, we know all this because it historically happened, and there were eyewitnesses to it. But beyond that, you have told us about all of this in your holy word. I pray, Father, that indeed, as we hear your word, we might heed your word, that it might 
reach deep down into our souls that we might truly know what it is to have eternal life. I pray that if there's any outside, any in darkness, may they find the light of Christ today. Any that are subject to condemnation and death, that they might come to life in Christ. We, we open this invitation to all, here in this auditorium as well as those who might hear this in days to come. May they hear the words of life and respond in faith. May it be demonstrated in a desire for obedience to you and enjoy the, the flourishing that you have promised. We, we are weak creatures in and of ourselves, but we, in our weakness, we can be strong through you. And so I pray that you would also strengthen the saints, that we might be godly, that we might be right before you, that we might be right before our fellow man. I pray for your blessings this day. Be with us this day in a unique presence. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, you know, anytime you see me up here, it's, you have to remember to pray for Blake because he's ill. So he has a bit of a cold. So, uh, so I'll turn to 228 in our hymnals. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. 228. <laughs> communion in just a moment and Jerry if you will bless the elements the bread and the fruit of the vine. Let's go ahead and pray. Gracious Father we're indeed thankful 
for these elements that we are about to partake of now, for the, the cup representing the blood of Christ, Lord, <clears throat> shed for us all, Lord, once for all, and for the, the bread which represents the body, Lord, broken for us. Father, we pray that you would bless as we partake it now in remembrance of him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We will. Let's go ahead and receive the elements. What I want you to do is receive both and then return back to your seat. So you get both the bread and the cup. And we'll start with this side here. If you'll go ahead and stand and receive the elements and then return. In our study this morning, we were looking at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And from that text in Revelation 1, I'll read further. It's a blessing for us today. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. Receive this bread in remembrance of him. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Receive this in remembrance of Christ. One final word before we sing. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's all stand and turn to 336. Come, thou mighty king, 336. He is the king of glory, Psalm 2410. <clears throat> turn to 314 all hail the power of Jesus name
Good morning, everyone. Acts 20 and verses 17 through 38 is our scripture reading this morning. The passage begins on page 929 of the Pew Bible. Acts 20, 17 through 38, beginning on page 929. The Apostle Paul is nearing the end of his third missionary journey. It's about A.D. 57, 58, and he's eager to return to Jerusalem. He wants to be there by the day of Pentecost, as, as we heard last week. Now, toward the outset of this final missionary journey, Paul stopped in the city of Ephesus in Asia. He would spend three years of unceasing, Bible-intensive ministry in Ephesus. Now, on the way back to Jerusalem, he decides to bypass Ephesus and sail down to Miletus. Nevertheless, he had something to say to the people of Ephesus. The great burden of his heart that he had for them led him to call the overseers, the elders of the church, to come to Miletus so he could address them personally. His goal, I believe, was to remind them his labor-intensive gospel ministry done on their behalf, as well as his hard work as a tent maker, should continue to serve as examples of godly service for them. He reminds them that their primary duties as elders were to preach the word of truth and to call uh, the church to protect the church from uh, outside forces. In verse 32, Dr. Luke records that Paul uses the word commend, and we'll get there in just a minute. I commend you to God, it reads. According to Vine's Greek dictionary, Paul is entrusting these elders with the work of the ministry, the sacred duty to carry on the good work at Ephesus. He is, in effect, passing the torch for them to hold forth the word of God and his grace as the center of all they do as overseers of God's precious flock. But there's something else underlying and underscoring what he tells them. This, Paul says, is the last time they will ever see him in this life. This is his farewell address to his beloved Ephesian elders and the church that they oversee. Acts 20, beginning at verse 17. Now from Miletus he went to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Let's pray. Father, what a remarkable local body that you've called us to, where you have provided elders who care for us with tears and with preaching, coming alongside us to encourage and bless us. And I pray for our elders, Father, for protection and blessing for them and their families, but also that they'll be strong in the word and strong to encourage and watch over this flock to keep us safe from false teachers. Pray that you bless them, Father, richly. And Father, I pray that none of us would one day feel that we are, uh, we have reached the place where we have anyone's blood on our hands, that is, that we have not given anyone the gospel. Open our hearts, open our minds, help us to look at the situations of life in which we find ourselves, to make the most of the opportunities to share the gospel with our family, with our friends, with our co-workers, and those that you bring before us in our passage. Bless and encourage us and show us your glory. I pray now, Father, for this morning's worship. I pray that you bless the offering. I pray that you bless the singing that we were 
about to be blessed by. And I pray that you bless uh, our elder, our preaching elder, Wayne especially, that he will hold forth the word of life, that he will teach us and that the Holy Spirit will drive that message home to us. And I pray these things in Christ's name and for his name's sake. Amen. Thank you, Amanda, for leading the children. Amber, as well, for helping. What a joyous reminder to be reminded from the cross to the crown. We're on the journey right now. I hope you made that first 
step as you've entered into Christ now in communion with him because of his blood. We're going to look at the significance of the elements once again from the tabernacle. Today we'll focus primarily on the table and the bread. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. <coughs> the preacher of Hebrews has been declaring the supremacy of Christ. That's, if you don't get anything else, you get that. This old covenant was symbolic and pointed to a singular one, Jesus Christ, who would fulfill all that it pictured in absolute perfection. These rituals that were done were symbolic. You find that in verse 9 of our text. Christ is the real. It, it'll, you'll see the word true from time to time. It, it, it's not in contrast to that which is false, but that which is real, to which all of these pointed to, these realities, is Christ. These objects couldn't in and of themselves accomplish anything, but they can point to the one who has. Look at verse 9. As I mentioned, that says that these things are symbolic for the present age, According to his arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. So they're doing things here with these objects. They are offered, but they cannot, note the word, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. See, these are symbols. They're ordained by God. But they are not intended to bring about that which will change the very heart of man. They are symbols to the one who will, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say these things, these symbols, as important as they might be, they just deal with food and drink, washings, regulations, and they're imposed until now. The Reformation, as he calls it, that is Christ. They all point to Christ <coughs> because Christ can perfect the conscience. It is Christ and Christ alone that can change the heart or mind, if you want to think of it that way, of man. It is only Christ then, as they pointed to Christ, it is only Christ now, as we think of him in the fulfillment. This preacher here, he talks about those symbols in the form of the tabernacle as opposed to the temple. He doesn't mention the temple, although it exists here at this time. He doesn't mention it. He's pointing to the tabernacle, and I think I've noted that before, because that is the real picture of going from this idea of bondage, in their case, through the wilderness to the promised land. And it parallels the life of all of God's people brought out of bondage, brought out of the slavery of sin, and yet going through a period of time of great trouble and difficulty, as a wilderness might picture and imagine, looking for a promised land. The wilderness 
journey, that, that time be, between the cross and the crown can be a very difficult and lonely time. Paul would say in, in Romans that God is for us. So, so who's going to be against us? Well, everyone's going to be against you, but not successfully. That's the point. Because why? He, has, see, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So how would he not graciously give us all things, that is, provide for us in this wilderness time? Who is actually going to bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, the ones he has chosen, his people? It is God who has then declared righteous, that is, to justify so who is then going to condemn? <clears throat> what higher court might there be? There is none. It is God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who, who died, that is, paid the penalty for that sin. And more than that, he has raised. And he has ascended on high. He's at the right hand of God. And currently now interceding for us. This is the picture that is painted by this preacher in Hebrews of Christ in his mediatorial work right now. The, the one who died, the one who triumphed in resurrection, the one who has ascended to the throne on high, and currently right now at this moment is interceding on behalf of all of his. So what great refuge is it in Christ? Who will separate us from this love, Paul asks rhetorically. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, this is what we will go through. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Go out and preach the gospel and see what happens. Go live a godly life and see how much attaboys you get. Now, in all these things, however, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or de depth or, or nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a blessed thing it is to know Christ. That's what all of these pictures point to. They point to Christ. This morning I want to look at the second artifact that is in this holy place, this tent of meeting. Let's read about it in just the first five verses in, verse, in chapter 9 of Hebrews. He's talking about the old covenant, the first covenant. It had regulations, and that's all the stuff that we just talked about God had ordained. Regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and the table of, and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, 
having a golden altar of incense, <coughs> and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and tablets of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and then he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Let us pray. Father, I pray as we do look at some of this detail that we might see the glory of Christ. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned here, the preacher says we're not going to get into detail. He didn't need to. These were Hebrews. They knew exactly what he was talking about. The images were clear in their mind. They're not as clear to us. They're not quite as familiar. By the way, we set up a little model um, that uh, Gail found in the back of the church. Children, if you want to look at that model of that tent, tabernacle, and how it's structured, you have it back there. And if you're really nice to Neil, he has some great pictures of a, of a huge model that uh, he was going to show me, but I'm not going to tell you he has them, and you might want to check that out, too. But in any case, uh, it's, it's interesting to know and to be familiar with. And also, I thought I would take the time to provide a little bit of detail as well so that it would be more meaningful for us not to just see pictures or a little uh, model of it. <coughs> uh, by the way, on that little model back there, I was just noticing, uh, now people have played with it, and it's... Um, it's okay to play with it and move it around. Just don't take any of the little characters home. But if you'll look at, I talked about the door into the tent and how big it is. Uh, it's done there, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, by the, by the right uh, scale? Yeah, it's pretty close to scale. And, and you'll notice how big that entranceway is uh, into that first courtyard that leads to what? The brazen altar and then the laver. It's really, it's really interesting to, to note that and put that together so you have that image in your mind and you can see it there. In any case, I digress. This um, second reason I want to bring this up too, not only we're not as familiar with it, but I also want to introduce you to some Old Testament texts so that you would look at them. And here, and you may want to hold some of these, we'll get to them in a minute. It would be Exodus 25, and we'll read that text and a little bit from Leviticus 24. And, and agree, I, I, I think I mentioned this morning uh, in our class that it's hard to slog through some of that stuff. I, I understand that because it seems so ancient and so different. But as uh, we already read that New Testament passage where Christ said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is these that speak of me. And so we'll see Christ in Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24 as well. This tabernacle, this structure, was set up with the children of Israel as they traveled in the wilderness. They would set it up in the middle of the camp every time they stopped. They had specific requirements. <clears throat> this perimeter, as we mentioned, it's kind of an open-air courtyard to which all are invited. You'll come to that brazen altar representing the cross, and then the labor demonstrating this continual cleansing 
spiritual cleansing from sin. But the tent proper and this first room, as we've described it, the holy place, this is not picturing Christ in the wilderness, but Christ in heaven. In that room, it pictures what Christ is doing now. You remember, Christ has ascended on high. He's in the th- he's on the throne. He is at the right hand of God, it is said. That is, he is in authority. He is in power. He made propitiation for our sin in the days of his earth when he lived here among us. But then he rose from the dead, ascended on high, and he now is on the throne. And that's what this picture of inside the tent points to. And this first room we come to describes through these objects what Christ is doing now interceding on the behalf of his people. Three artifacts are located in that first room. The lampstand, the table of showbread, and an altar of incense. We'll pick up the altar of incense next week. Last week, we talked about the lampstand. <coughs> it is the lampstand that gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. You want to know God, you want to be in fellowship with him, it will come through a single one, and that is Jesus Christ. And in that sense, he is light and grants that light that knowledge, that miracle work in the heart of man to show the glory of God. But there's a second object in that room, and that object has two components, a table and bread. That's verse 2 in your text, Hebrews 9, 2. The table and the bread is called the bread of presence here. Now, these two aspects here, the table and the bread, they're inextricably linked together. You, you need to put bread on something. You just don't throw it on the ground. And if you have a table, you, you, you should put something on the table, right? It makes sense. They're linked together. They have a practical purpose, one for the other. These artifacts, and I'll split them out, the table and the bread, both communicate different aspects of our communion with God through Christ. As we are welcomed at his table and to eat and partake of the bread of presence. The the presence, by the way, is a word that means faces. So, So you guys are present. I see your faces. That's the point. This is God who is present. It is God. It prefigures this feast in which we are present with God at his table and receiving daily sustenance. This is the part of the mediatorial work that Christ is doing right now. To examine the table, I think it would be helpful for us to look at the detail. And here, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 25. We'll, look, we'll pick it up just in verse 23. <coughs> for the table... 
look at the description of it here in Exodus 25 and verse 23. You shall make a table of Achaia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Notice this, you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the trim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its legs. By the way, this is how they're carrying this. Remember, it's portable. Okay? So there's some practical aspects to it. But I do want you to notice the wood and the gold here in this, inner, in this room, in this temple, uh, tabernacle room. Close to the frame of the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles out of a kale wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense and flagons and bowls which to pour drink offerings. And you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So you get the image here. This table made of wood and overlaid with gold. Again, I'm not going to press all of this too far in these objects, but you do want to get a picture of what's going on here. This wood that, that is mentioned here is also the wood that was required to use to make, which we'll get into in, in, in a few weeks, the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the next room. It was used to make the posts for the tabernacle that held up the structure and also the altar for the burnt offering. Find that in Exodus 27. This is a special wood, a species that we call Achaia wood. Hebrew word is shitta. It is a tree in the Sinai Peninsula that could, could, could grow 20 feet in height two feet in width. And the whole point about this wood and why it's so special is, in their day in particular, this was a close-grain wood. This is a wood that essentially was impervious to insects and wouldn't rot. So it makes great sense to make substantial articles that you want to keep with you to protect them and to, to make them uh, so that they are essentially indestructible. Again, this points to the very nature of Christ. When we think about the table itself, made of wood, not any wood, but a unique, indestructible wood, in a sense, an incorruptible wood, referring to his flesh, in which he was born of a woman, a virgin. He obtained a nature without corruption, by which the, the seed was passed on to humanity. Also note, I said the burnt offering, the bur burnt altar, I meant to say, was, was, uh, was made of the same wood, but it was overlaid with brass instead of gold. I think the imagery there, that is judgment. Is Christ atoned for sin on earth? The table here, back to this room with this table made of wood, it needed to be overlaid completely with gold, depicting his deity. 
So here you have an incorruptible wood and, and a glorious gold pure representing his deity and depicting ultimately the current glory in which he resides. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. This table then, what is it doing about Christ? Ultimately, it pictures our communion with God. Those that were once enemies outside the camp, if you will, have now been brought in in fellowship with God because of the blood of Christ and because of the cleansing, have been adopted into the priestly family, have been made a kingdom of priests. And now, guess what the privilege is in this imagery? You can come to the table. You can have complete fellowship with God in a unique way. And by the way, there is no other way. It's just one of the benefits of it. And that benefit occurs right now. I mean, we're, we're looking for the promised land that we're going to get there. But here, spiritually, he's mediating it now. Not only providing light, but also sustenance. The, the table is, is really an important aspect and can be really easily uh, overlooked because you're thinking about the bread, and we'll get to that for sure. But, but the whole imagery of a table in any culture, as far as I know, and ours today, certainly. This idea of gathering around and having, what do we call that building over there? Oh, yeah, the fellowship hall, right? But what do we do at the fellowship hall? We eat. And we have a table. That's what's being communicated there. I think uh, A.W. Pink does a good job in, in providing an illustration of this that might fit well. As he states in his commentary there, the table speaks of communion. And I think, it's, I think he's right. He goes on to describe a beautiful picture found in 2 Samuel 9. It's in that text. You may have remembered reading through it. I'll just quote you his note. King David asks, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. This is a lovely illustration, he goes on to say, of the wondrous grace of God, showing kindness to those who belong to the house of his enemy for the sake of his beloved. This picturing once an enemy, now for the sake of his beloved. He said, there is one, even Meshibetheth, a lame on his feet, him David sent and fetched unto himself, and then to show that he is fully reconciled to this grandson of his foe, David said, But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Second Samuel 9, 10. Evidencing that he had been brought into the place of the most intimate fellowship. Once an enemy. Once an outsider, once a relative of the enemy, is now reconciled and brought in to sit and dine at the table. This is a common imagery of the idea of, of fellowship and gathering around uh, this object of a table which demonstrates fellowship. 
Paul would use this analogy in 1 Corinthians 10. I won't go through it at length, but his argument, he concludes with this in 10.21 of 1 Corinthians. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Right? You can't be in fellowship with both sides. And how is it illustrated? By your participation in communion and fellowship around the table. He says this, he goes on to say, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So whether join coffee or a full course meal, we gather together and engage in fellowship with one another. We would call it hospitality and is part of that which binds us together in the Christian faith. This idea of gathering together and being hospitable. Paul would tell the church at Rome to seek to show hospitality one to another. Romans 12, 13. And why would we do so? Because of God's hospitality towards us. That is the motivation for it. And here I invite you to get an illustration of this idea of the table communion and fellowship with God in the way it's expressed by Jesus Christ in an illustration in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus wants to illustrate what it is to be in the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the word heaven. It's the same thing. It's just a different way to express that concept of being in fellowship with God in his kingdom. And so to explain it, he uses an illustration of a wedding. Matthew 22, 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, and that's what the parable is. It's a story. It's an illustration. And he says that kingdom of heaven may be compared. That's how you know it's an illustration. It can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And, and, and again, he, he's pointing out, I won't go through every detail, I think you'll get it, what, what he's pointing out about God and the son. And he, and he sent to his servants and said, call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But, but they, they would not come. And so again, he sent, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my, notice, dinner, my oxen and my fat calves and have slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went off. One to his farm, one to his business. Well, the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, read wrath. So he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city, judgment. And then he said to his servants, well, the wedding feast is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. 
And he said to them, Friend, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him out into the utter darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Here's an illustration of the call to do what? Come into communion with God, illustrated by this idea of an elaborate wedding feast. But they won't come. They were the ones that were specifically on the list, but they had something else to do. So they rejected, and they went away, and they're going to miss it. And so then it goes out to all, and this is God's grace spread out to all, invited as many as you come, and, and, and then many came. They weren't prepared to come, but one of the guests, they, they don't have the garment, verse 11. None of them had a garment. He doesn't put it on. They were given what they needed. They weren't prepared for this, to be in fellowship. This was another grace, not only to come, but to have on that which is fitting. And this is the message of the gospel, to come into fellowship with God, and he will give you the garments that you need to wear. You will not come and be a part and associated wearing your own rags. You will need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't afford to buy it. That's all right because he will give it to you. But if you will stand in his presence, it's only going to be in Christ alone. My main point of this parable, however, is to illustrate this idea of this gathering together in a great feast, a great marriage feast, if you will, in great fellowship. That's what the table is pointing to, that you can be in fellowship with God, not in the future, but right now. Oh, there is a future fellowship in which all of that is realized in the quote-unquote promised land the destination for us all. And for us to see it, I do think I have a few minutes. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. The same imagery is, is, is given, just a little different nuance of a wedding. Revelation 19, as you can understand, is towards the end. Revelation 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude revelation 19 6 like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for note this the marriage of the lamb has come and the the bride has made herself ready she's wearing the right garment it it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure notice the word granted here it, it isn't that she went and knitted her own and came with her own rags or knitted something that might be suitable it wouldn't she was granted that bright and pure is the imagery fine linen it's the righteous deeds of the saints. And how would anything right come out of a sinner? It would be made saints. And pursue the 
work and the power of Christ in the life of the believer that brings about first faith, repentance, and to, to grow in grace and knowledge, to display those good works in which we were created to do, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. The angel then says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Again, I think this true is not in contrast to that which is false, but that which is realized. Does that make sense? This is when it's realized in the eternal eschaton. This imagery, though, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are called to fellowship with him, and it is portrayed as an eternal feast. Standing before him be garments that are given to us that are actually even displayed in our life by those works that we do through the power of God. But it's not completed yet, and so we look forward to a full fellowship described here as the marriage supper of the Lamb with his bride. But what about now? And that's where I want you to take this dive back to the Old Testament, and let's look what's on that table that we're invited to. What elements are there? And specifically, it is bread. Leviticus 24 is where I invite you to turn. Leviticus 24. Here is a description of the, those loaves that are on that table. The bread of presence. <clears throat> Leviticus 24, verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You know what table he's talking about. We just described it. And you shall put frankincense on each pile so that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. And every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in that holy place. That's the place we're talking about. Since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. So note this. Every week, this is something that the priests did who went into that first room. They were to make a fresh bread, and they laid them out. And notice here, as it specifies, they are equal. Twelve loaves of equal portions on the table. Now, the bread wasn't for some pagan god as is practiced in pagan religions, where they give some sort of offering. It is for God because their God might be hungry. It isn't. It is for the worshipers, and specifically those that are covenanted with him. Each tribe, that's the point of the 12 that's noted here, each tribe got the same. Now, they might not have been the same. Some might have had more scars that they carried in disgrace, like Reuben. Some might be highly exalted, like Judah, or some hardly even thought of, like Benjamin. But yet, here, it's showing this equal 
uh, um, gift that's given to them, they're all invited to the table and they all get an equal portion. We often think of our achievements of one another and measure by one another. But Christ is the one who's exalted. Christ is the one who has lifted up. We are treated as his beloved and all are invited to the table. This invitation is exclusive, verse 9. It's reserved for the priestly family. It's a special privilege granted by Christ, the great high priest, who brings us into the family and welcomes us to his fellowship feast. And what will we feast on? Him. For this, I'll just invite you to turn to John chapter 6, as Jesus explains. John chapter 6. Now, if you remember in John chapter 6, there's an event that occurs at the very beginning. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. It's probably at least double and maybe four times that amount because they just counted the men. Jesus goes on the other... I'm at John chapter 6. Jesus goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw that he was able to heal the sick. And a lot of people are concerned about being sick and want healed. We do to, to today as well. It happened to be Passover, and they were out there, and this large crowd came towards him. And Jesus then turns to Philip, I'm at verse 5, and he says, well, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? That's a good question, but he really wanted Philip to think about it. Verse 6 explains that. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Christ knew what he was going to do all along. But he wants to test Philip to look to Christ as the source and sustenance of life. We pray for what? Give us this day our daily... If you have anything to eat, it's because of Christ, physically. But it's way beyond that. It's sustenance of life. If you have a breath, it is because of Christ. It is Christ who has not only created all things, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. So you might say, well, I don't feel hungry, so should I pray for bread? Yes, you should. Because it's more than just physical food. I do agree physical food is provided by Christ, that's why we live, but he provides the breath, the very breath that we have. Christ knew what he was going to do because he is life. 
And he'll explain that in this passage and what those loaves of bread that they actually all would have known about from this tabernacle, from all of this regular activity that went on in baking that bread and the covenant people, the priests, eating that bread. So Jesus says, drop down to verse 10, had the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the man sat down. And there was about 5,000. See, they're counting the men. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the people who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Where did that come from? The fish and the bread. There's a boy here, verse 9, says, who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they... So many. That's an understatement, isn't it? But they forgot about Christ. That's the, that's the key factor, isn't it? They, they forgot about Christ, and Jesus knew what he was going to do. He doesn't need any f- barley loaves or any fish. The, cr- the creator of heaven and earth could call anything into existence if he wanted. And so he does call into existence more than they could imagine. So they all ate, and it wasn't spared, if you will, cut up small little portions so each one could have a little bit, but it's specifically stated here they, they can have as much as they wanted, and they did. And when they had eaten their fill, verse 12, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing would be lost. Now, I want you to notice this in verse 13. How much they gathered there up? Twelve. They filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and for those who had eaten them. The people had saw the sign that he had done and said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. He's tying that back, all that imagery right there at that very moment demonstrates Christ as he performs the reality, the the very truth of the fact that he is indeed the substance of life. This, This 12 isn't by accident. It correlates precisely with the 12 loaves that have been there as a sign and a symbol of that which is actually manifested right before them. And many people recognize that and point back to this passage in Deuteronomy where there's a call that there will be someone greater that would come. And they say, "Is indeed, this is the one. Well, if you've read through this passage, you kind of know the rest of the story because their imagination, however, for this idea of sustenance and bread was all temporal was all transitory. And Christ demonstrates it to them. He just leaves. He leaves the crowd. Another miracle occurs on a boat. He gets to the other side like that. So the people go looking for him. Because not only can Christ heal the sick, he can feed the crowd. And let me tell you, you you have that kind of service where you're healing all the sick and they're all getting fed well. You're going to get a big crowd. Because a lot of people want that. Christ recognizes that, and 
they come to see him. Verse 25, drop down. And they said to him, well, why would you come over here, Rabbi? And Jesus said, he, he went away from them to the other side. He says, truly, truly, that means absolutely with great surety. I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then he gives them the admonition here. He can see in the heart. He knows the motivation behind him. By the way, I find this to be very difficult. We don't, we hardly know the motivation in our own actions and activities. I give people the de- benefit of the doubt on their motives. Don't always know their motives. But you know someone who does? Christ. This is why you go to Christ and confess. See if there's any wicked way in me. I, most of the time, I don't see my wicked way. Others tell me about it, but... Uh, it's hard to look introspectively in that regard, but Christ can see. He sees through. And his admonition to them, verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For in him, God, the Father, has set his seal. So there's the, the admonition there that to instead of focusing on that which is transitory and temporal, look for the food that it leads to eternal life, that is the communion with Christ. And God has given him that authority, that's the idea of setting the seal, in that the proof of it is the demonstration of what Christ's message is, is by the miracles he had performed. No one else could do that. Then they said to them, verse 28, well, what, what do we need to do to be working the works of God? And here is Christ's answer, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom they sent. All of it is pointing right back to Jesus Christ. And don't get confused by the work that they got to somehow manifest and work this up in their own heart. Belief is faith. And it's saying, put your faith in Christ. You want to do work? What kind of work do you want to do? Come to Christ. Believe in Him. Put your trust in Him. That's what He's calling them to do. He is the sustenance. Trust Him. Put your faith in Him. So they said to Him, okay, then what sign do you do that we might then have faith, that's believe, so that we might believe. What work would you perform? And here, you just want to shake your head. Are you kidding? He just fed at least 10 and probably as much as 20,000 people with nothing. Okay? And beyond that, he showed them the symbol and the sign by gathering up when they're done 12 basketfuls, not 11, not 10, not 13, but 12. All of it points to the fact that it is Christ is the sustenance of life. What work, what, what else will you do? How blind. How obstinate. And so then they they point to their own tradition in in their own history. Well, our verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. 
as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And here Christ stands before them and declares this in verse 32. And again, another truly, truly, meaning this is absolute verity. It wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven. Moses is just an intermediary. All bread comes from Christ. All good gifts come from God. It is all through Christ. He says, my Father then gives you the true bread from heaven. And note the word true again. I think they keep using this terminology again, not to talk about that which is false and true, but that which is real or realized. It is Christ that these symbols point to, that the very sustenance that you eat points to, that which gives you life, and you must eat to live. But even that, your regular daily bread, point to the fact it is Christ by which you will live. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so in that picture, even as the manna from the old uh, covenant, as they were in the wilderness and they received this daily ration, it, it just simply pictures that one who truly comes down from heaven, that is God incarnate in Christ, and he does so to give life to the world. Their response Sir, give us this bread always. They're just still thinking about filling their bellies. They're not thinking about Christ. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, verse 32, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread, my father, the true bread of heaven. They said to him, Give it. Us always. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. <laughs> whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see that? He says, I am the bread of life. Once again, invoking this phraseology that is used of God. I am that I am. Christ says, I am what? I am the bread of life. Come to me, you're not going to hunger. And come to me, you're not going to thirst. In other words, you want life? Do you want to be sustained? Do you want eternal life to flourish? Not just temporal, but eternal. And Christ provides both, by the way. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. All they had was physical sustenance. It's temporal, and it's over. He'll explain, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. In contrast, I am that living bread that comes down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of this world is my flesh. Well, now this irritated them. 
quite a bit. Verse 52, how can he give us our flesh, his flesh to eat? They're still thinking only in a materialistic way. And so Christ responds again, demonstrating this true and spiritual aspect. He says, truly, truly, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's, he's not talking about consuming him physically. Th this is metaphorically. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. He will raise. You, you, if all of your life is involved in the sustenance of this life, you're going to die like they did in the wilderness because they didn't have faith in God. And if all your life is focused on the temporal, that's all you're going to have and not the eternal. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 50, oh, he says my flesh, verse 55, and notice the word again. It's, it's the true is mentioned here. For my flesh is, is true food and my blood is true drink. In other words, the, the reality to which the symbols point to. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's what he's talking about, abiding in Christ, having Christ the center of your focus and your life. He's not talking about eating physical flesh and drinking physical blood, but abiding in Christ, using this imagery of bread. This is the bread that came down from heaven, he says, verse 58, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Physical eating is necessary for and drinking for physical life, granted. But here he's talking about spiritual eating and drinking. It is necessary for spiritual life. It's an expression of faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the true substance. And the invitation is to come. The invitation is to come to Christ, to come to his table, and to feed on Christ. But you will not come unless you have your sin atoned for and cleansed and have been made a priest unto God. And all of that is his work. The other imagery of the wedding, you're not going to come in without the right clothes. You need to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Back in Leviticus 22, when it talks about this holy place and coming into this fellowship and eating the bread, it, it was a holy thing, and no foreigner was allowed in, only the priests. This is the invitation to come, to fellowship with Christ, but you'll come through the cross. You'll come through his cleansing. You'll come to him as a child of a king. And it's a call to 
come and fellowship with him daily. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would recognize that Christ is, is all. That Christ would be the focus of our life, the sustenance on which we live. That we might say with Paul, whether we live or die, we live for Christ. This will be accomplished through your work, and I pray that you'd work in our hearts to have that perspective and to enjoy the great feast that you provide. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment, beloved, to think on these things. Respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you today. I hope you also remember that one of the aspects of this communion table that we have set here with the bread and the cup is to remind us of our communion with Christ even now. In Christ's words about fellowship in reality, he will abstain from it until that day he drinks it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Christ, we, we pray that we would look forward to that blessed day and enjoy the gifts that you have given us this day and look forward to the reality of it in your presence. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 237 in our hymnals. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, 237. <laughs>
train will be dismissed. Now let the word of God, uh, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.